Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's open to Romans 16. One more time, Lord willing, this Sunday and the next Sunday will be our final sermon in this uh, wonderful series, verse by verse through the book of Romans. We come today to chapter 16, verses 1 through 16 as our text. Now, as already has been said numerous times, this is an incredibly important day. It's the day of the year that we honor some incredibly important people, our mothers. But you probably know that we live in a society today that has downgraded the importance of motherhood in general and women, and yet the Bible gives both women and motherhood a great place of honor. I want to rise this morning to honor three very important women in my life. Number one is my wife and mother of my four children, Melissa, who uh, I was asked recently to describe her to someone who had never met her, and the word that came out was heroic. She's my hero. And then I have two other women that are here today, the grandmothers of my four children, her mother, Melissa's mother, Nancy, and my mother, Joe, both members of this church and great and wonderful saints of the Lord. And so I know you, if you had the microphone, would honor those women in your life, but I have the microphone, so I did it. So there you go. <laughs> the title of the message today is The Priority of People. Demographers who know about such things tell us that over 50% of the world's population are female. The Bible is full of accounts of the lives of women that God used for his glory. Women like Deborah and Esther, Mary and Martha, the friends of Jesus, Lois and Eunice, the grandmother and mother of Timothy. In our text today, we have a long list of some names of people that God used to propagate the gospel in the first century church. And to no one's surprise, many of them are women. Now, we only have one more message, as I said, in our study of Romans. But I recall two years ago when we started this study, I said that I believe Roman to be the greatest book ever written, which makes it very valuable. And as we will see today, God entrusted this valuable letter to be delivered, not by an armored truck, but in the hands of a dear sister in Christ. Let's read about Phoebe and many of the other people in the first century church, beginning in verse 1, Romans 16. He says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe. By the way, let me pause right here. There are 33 names from this point on to the end of the chapter, all of which are very difficult to pronounce. And I'm from Mississippi, and I'm going to do my best. But I think the greatest advice I ever gave about reading difficult names in a public setting came not at seminary, but from an umpire that told me one day at a high school baseball game in which I was coaching. I came out to very gently and kindly express to him that he had very unintentionally called a man safe that was clearly out. (laughs) And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, coach, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day whether I call him safe or out, so long as I call him with conviction. (laughs) And so I'm going to try to read these names with conviction and you decide whether I pronounce them right or not, okay? Here we go. As I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Centria. 
that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphone and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren within. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. May the Lord add his blessing the reading of this, his word. Well, we're coming down the home stretch. Two years we've been studying Romans and we have already completed the body of the letter. And for the past few weeks, we have been finishing up with Paul's personal greetings, showing his love and respect for the members of the church at Rome and sending his regards from those who are with him there in Corinth from where he's writing. In our text today, we find the names of two dozen believers that Paul sends greetings to. Some we know a little bit about and others we know absolutely nothing about but their name. However, there are some hints about their names that help us reconstruct what life must have been like in the first century church. Now, what is very clear when we read the first 15 chapters of Romans and we read all of the Pauline letters in the New Testament is that the Apostle Paul must have surely possessed an incredible mind and a wonderful grasp of theology. He has been given by the Lord incredible insight into God's eternal plan of redemption. And he is a conscientious and faithful teacher of God's word. Further, as we saw last week, he is zealous for personal evangelism and pioneer missions. But sometimes when we meet people who are particularly zealous for any field of service, especially theology, we assume that because they're so deep theologically, they must be lacking in interpersonal relationship skills. We've all likely known pastors or missionaries or even Sunday school teachers who are exceptional when it comes to studying and communicating the truths of the gospel, and yet we find it difficult to carry on a conversation with them. On the other hand, we've probably all known teachers and pastors who had a great love and affection for people, but might have been somewhat shallow theologically. Well, the first thing I want us to see this morning is that using the example of the Apostle Paul is that as a church and as a believer, we should aim for both and not either or. Here's what I mean. Three things. What I mean that on a church level, our church, First Baptist Keller, does not have to choose between being a church that loves God's word and cares for deep theology and being a church that loves people. We don't have to be either or. We should be both hand. Now, on a, on a zoomed-in level, your Sunday school class does not have to choose between fellowshipping and socializing 
around the donut table for 45 minutes and giving 15 minutes attention to the study of God's Word or vice versa. You can study the Bible, but also have a very important social ministry within that group. Thirdly, on a very individual level, if the Lord is calling you to be a pastor or a vocational minister of any kind, you don't have to decide between being spending the rest of your life in isolation in the ivory tower of academics, studying systematic theology, or being out in the fields which are ripened to harvest. I believe that a call to ministry is a call to prepare, but it's a call to prepare to work in and among the people. Now, we were singing the song a while ago, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one. And I did that while I was sitting there. I was counting blessings specifically of people that God had placed in my life at strategic moments that had helped me to become a pastor. First and foremost was my own father who was a pastor for many years. And, and my dad was an example of someone who was diligent about study. Now he loved people too. But I don't recall a time in my life where he ever was without a book in his lap. Now he's like me, he enjoyed sports from time to time but he could not watch a game without a book in his lap. So between timeouts, he would read a book. And uh, he, he was a great example of great study. And then there's another man in my life that some of you will remember, Dr. Leroy Patterson, who pastored this church for 14 years before me and uh, who the Lord called home unexpectedly a few weeks after his retirement. I had the privilege of being his intern and his personal assistant for four years before his death. And I learned much about pastoring from him. I'm so grateful for his investment in me. Uh, very near the end of his life, he and I had spent a long day at the hospitals visiting the sick. And we were almost back to the church. Uh, the rest of the staff had already gone home. I'm sure it was late. And um, I remembered a lady who on Sunday had asked me to ask Dr. Patterson to drop by and visit her. And I thought, he's so tired. I really shouldn't. But I said, Dr. Patterson, do you have time to visit sister so-and-so? And he looked at me over his Coke bottle glasses, as he often did, and he said, Keith, remember this, we always have time for people. I've never forgotten that. Now, here's two men who balanced it right, the study of God's word and the priority of people. In fact, that's our title of the message today, the priority of people. What Dr. Patterson clearly meant was that people are not an obstacle to be overcome in our pursuit of our business. I have heard pastors say in describing what they do, if it weren't for people, I'd love to be a pastor. <laughs> but people are not an obstacle to be overcome in our pursuit of our business. People are our business. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. And I assume what he meant by that is lost people. And when he gave his great commission in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all kinds of people. And Paul understood this and he therefore invested his life in the priority of people. So here's a question to ask as we move forward. What is the benefit of living your life like that? Is there a benefit investing your time, talent, and treasure in other Christians? I believe there is, and that's our second point. The first benefit is multiplied blessings and influence. Parenthetically, I've written out to the side in my outline, fruit. There is multiplied fruit and influence through investing your life in people. Now, we all have a finite amount of time in a day. And all of us, though we don't like to think about it, have a finite amount of time in a life. 
We can only be one place at one time. So it makes sense to invest in other people who can carry on our passion and calling long after we're gone and in places that we can't physically travel. Remember the example here is of Paul who wanted to go to the nation of Spain. And I said, no one knows if he ever made it there. There's no evidence one way or the other. But we know this, the gospel did make it to Spain. So whether Paul made it or not, those that he had influence did. And so it was a wise investment for Paul to invest in these other people. Now, who did Paul invest in specifically? Well, we all know Timothy and Titus, these young pastors who have books of the Bible in their name, as Paul wrote them letters of encouragement. Remember what he said to them, that Paul's plan of propagating the gospel, even after his death, was that he was going to invest in faithful men who would then invest in faithful men. And that's been going on for 2,000 years. That's why we're all here today, is that somewhere down the line, someone invested in someone else. But there were many other people, other than Titus and Timothy, that Paul invested time in. In fact, if you'll go home today and read the book of Acts, I tell you what, do that on Monday. Today, spend time with your mother. But uh, Monday... Open the book of Acts and you will find the names of literally dozens of people that Paul had a deep relationship with, whom he viewed as equals, fellow laborers in the gospel mission, and many of these carried on Paul's passion for evangelism long after his death. So that's one great benefit of investing in people is multiplied and expanded ministry. Another benefit is our third point, and that is you will receive from these people a variety of helpful perspectives. I said to our Bible study group Wednesday night about the Gospels, of which there are four in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the same story from slightly different perspectives. And we need different perspectives on the same truth to get the fullest picture possible. So um, as we look at our text now, beginning in verse 1, we see the names of two dozen people, all that brought different perspectives to the Apostle Paul's ministry. Now, um, how Paul was familiar with these people, we don't know. Likely some by reputation and letters that he received. Probably some he had crossed paths with at one time or the other in some of his travels. But anyway, he knew a lot about them, as will be obvious. And the first is a woman by the name of Phoebe. Look at verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria. Now, it's almost certain that Phoebe was the one who was carrying this letter called the book of Romans now to the church at Rome. And within that letter, Paul had also written for her a letter of recommendation, which was very common in the ancient world and somewhat common still today. If any of you joined our church from a sister Baptist church, it's likely that you joined by transfer of letter. Now for many hundreds of years, Baptist churches literally required a letter of recommendation. If you moved, say, from Nashville, Tennessee to Dallas, Texas, and you were the member of the First Baptist Church of Nashville and you wanted to join First Baptist Church of Keller, we would send for correspondence to their secretary and say, Sister so-and-so, Brother so-and-so, a member in good standing. And when they wrote back and said, yes, they are, then you are welcome into a member of this church. So we still have this practice. Well, Phoebe had this letter of recommendation, likely along with the, the letter of Romans. Now, can you imagine a higher privilege or calling than to be the one to carry the greatest piece of literature ever written? The piece of literature that through which every great spiritual revival and awakening in human history can be traced to. 
the book of Romans. So what an incredible role Phoebe played. And I bet some have never heard of her before. Because this is the only place in all the Bible where her name is mentioned. She's described in some glowing terms, though. Paul says she has a good reputation. She's a servant of the church where she lived, and she is a saint. Now, I've heard people today say that their mother was a saint. Now, that may mean that she was a particularly wonderful mother. But in the context of the scripture, what it means to be a saint is not that you were a super Christian or that you'd even perform miracles. It just means you were born again. So every truly born-again person is a saint. And so what more could be said of this woman than she was truly a saint of God? There's not a higher level of commendation. And she was a helper, Paul says, of everyone and especially himself. So that's Phoebe, single lady apparently. And then he moves on to verse 3 to a married couple that you're likely more familiar with. He calls them Prisca and Aquila. In other places, they're referred to as Priscilla and Aquila. It's the same couple. We know more about them than any of these two dozen names because they are mentioned six times in the New Testament. They were fellow workers of Paul. Truthfully, at one time, they were business partners of Paul. Remember, Paul's trade was tent making. He went into business with these two people in that trade, and they were Christians, and they helped him. In fact, when Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, they went with him. And they mentored, this is what they're most known for, they mentored one of the greatest preachers in the New Testament, a young man by the name of Apollos. Now, they had fled Rome under persecution, and by this time, the persecution had died down, and apparently they'd gone back to Rome, and so Paul is sending his greetings to them, and what he says about them is that they're very dear friends of his, because they risked, Paul said, their own necks to save him. These people were courageous. Now, to be Paul's friend 2,000 years ago was to put yourself in danger. People were always looking for him. He was either in jail or getting out of jail. And so by virtue of their close friendship with him, they were in personal danger. But probably some incident happened that's not recorded in the Bible where they literally risked their own necks, and Paul never forgot it. He said, not only is this couple courageous, they are hospitable, because they were opening their home for the church to meet there. Now, in the first century church, there were no centralized buildings, no grand cathedrals, no worship centers, or even Sunday school space. And where people met, oftentimes, was in people's homes. And so at their own expense, they would open their home and welcome groups of Christians, and this is what his friends Quill and Priscilla were doing. And now he mentions a single man in verse 5b, a man by the name of Epinetus, who he simply calls a friend of his. But he is the answer to one of the great trivia questions of the Bible. Who was the first Christian convert in Asia? And the answer, Epinetus. But he was more than an answer to a trivia question. He was a real person who Paul loved greatly. He was a friend of Paul, and more importantly, he was a friend of Jesus. And then we come to another single lady, verse 6, a lady named Mary. It says, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Her nickname was Mary the Toiler. You come close, I'll tell you a little secret about every church I've ever been a part of. They need people named Mary the Toiler. They need people that aren't afraid to get their hands dirty, to do the things that not everybody's willing to do behind the scenes. And this was one of the great women of the Bible. Now, Someone gave me a gift many years ago. It was a book. It's in my office. And the title is All the Women of the Bible. And it has an article, literally, 
by the name of every woman who's listed in the Bible. And when you get to the M's, to Mary, it's several pages long because there's a lot of women named Mary in the Bible. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary and Martha, the friends of Jesus from Bethany. There's Mary Magdalene. And then there's this lady who we know absolutely nothing about but that she was a hard worker. What a great reputation to have. And then in verse 7, we have another couple, Andronicus and Junicus, likely a married couple, which Paul says are my relatives, my kinsmen. Now that may be literal. They may be cousins of Paul, but more than likely it just means they were Jewish. Because you remember earlier in the book of Romans, Paul called all Jewish people his kinsmen. They were fellow prisoners. Paul says they had been persecuted for their faith, just as Paul was often in prison. And he says, and this is very humble of Paul to say, they were in Christ before me. That is, I didn't lead them to faith as I did many of these people. They were Christians before I was and more mature than me at times. And, and, and they had a great reputation among the apostles. That is, everyone knew far and wide who was a Christian of the faith of this dear couple. Now let's just pause right there about halfway through and rehearse some of these people. We have seen women, men, singles, married people, business people, and ex-convicts so far, all in the same church. And I'll say that's how it ought to be, right? A family of faith. Now he goes on, beginning verse 9, he lists four more people, Amphiladus, Urbanus, Stachys, and Apellus. And he just in rapid fire succession says a little word about each. He says of Amphiladus that he's loved by Paul. Of Urbanus that he's a fellow worker. He works hard in the gospel. Stachys, he says, is beloved. He has a warm place of affection in his heart for Stachys. And of Apellus, he's approved in Christ. I take that to mean he suffered and his faith has found to be real and strong and valuable. And then he starts talking about whole households of people which tell me these are probably small groups of Christians who live around the city of Rome. He says the household of Aristobulus. Now this is very interesting because historians tell us that one of the most prominent families in Rome at this time was led by a man named Aristobulus who was the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who wanted to kill Jesus when he was a baby. We believe this because one of the next names in that household is named Herodian, which was likely a slave name to honor Herod, uh, Herod the Great. And then in verse 12, we have two ladies, two feminine names, probably sisters, and I think twins, Tryphone and Tryphosa. Now I was at the Little League fields yesterday and was uh, watching my son play ball, and around the corner came these two sweet little five-year-old girls in pink dresses and white bows and ponytails. And I said, here comes Tryphana and Tryphosa. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that wasn't their real names, but these names, Tryphana and Tryphosa, meant delicate and dainty. These very feminine ladies. And they had a friend, the next person is Persis. That's a female name for a slave who came from Persia. And all three of these women are described as hard workers for the Lord. So even if you were born into a wealthy family and you were dainty and delicate, you were expected to participate right alongside a slave named Persis. And again, this is the picture of the church. There's one more name we have time for, and that is in verse 13. This is my favorite one. The man by the name of Rufus. 
That's a manly name, isn't it? Rufus. He's described as a choice man. That is, he was uh, exalted above his peers, I think, for his faith. And here's the thing about Rufus. This isn't the only place where a man by the name of Rufus is mentioned in the New Testament. Many of you likely know that when Jesus was whipped and scourged and his crown of thorn placed on his brows, that that beating made him nearly exhausted to the point of death. And then he was expected to carry his cross up to where he would be executed. And Jesus was physically unable to do that. He was too exhausted. So a man from the crowd was pulled out, and his name was Simon. And he was from a place called Cyrene. And this is what Mark says about Simon the Cyrene in Mark 15, 21. His sons were Rufus and Alexander, the sons of Simon the Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. Now, this man mentioned here in Romans 16, was likely this same Rufus. He and his brother were likely among those who took the gospel to Antioch and stood up to the mob in the city of Ephesus. And on Mother's Day, it's worth noting that uh, Paul also greets Rufus's mother, which tells us that his father had likely died by this point and he had taken her into his household, which, by the way, we ought to do as Christian men, right? Right? We ought to take care of our mothers when our dads are gone. Jesus did. You know, one of the last things that Jesus said on the cross before he died is that he said to John, looking at Mary, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son. He made sure Mary was taken care of. Rufus was doing that, apparently. Now, let me just say one more time. Single people, married people. Women, men, wealthy, poor, educated, uneducated ex-convicts, and nobility. This is what the church should look like, a family of faith from all ranks of society. And let me say one more thing before we go, our fourth and final point. As wonderful example as Paul is of investing his life in other people, he's not the greatest example in the Bible. That would be the Lord Jesus. So fourth point, let's look to Christ as our example. As I read the Gospels this week, I was reminded how Jesus would work tirelessly. He would get up early in the morning while others were still asleep, and he would work all day long healing the sick, teaching them. He was compassionate. He fed the hungry. And yet throughout all of that, he was always approachable. In fact, one of the most interesting texts to me in the New Testament is where Jesus' disciples decided that he needed to be protected against people. They were going to form a barrier so that the people couldn't get to Jesus, particularly the people they thought were unworthy. And the people that they thought were most unworthy were children. They weren't letting the children. They, they thought that was wasting Jesus' time. And you know what Jesus said to them? He was angry, by the way. He said, suffer the children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was approachable, and he was investing in that next generation. Yes, Jesus taught some very deep things, the, the deepest and most important thing, which is how to have a relationship with God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father from me. He said some things that were hard to understand. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. He, he said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, he was also very personable and approachable. And he loved and invested 
in people. And if Jesus could do both and, we should do both and. And don't get me wrong, I, I rejoice because our reputation is the community that First Baptist Church of Keller has a high view of Scripture. I'm grateful for that. But we don't have to stop there. We don't have to say we have a high view of Scripture and the other church down the street actually loves people, right? The Bible says we're known by our love one for another. But we're also known in the community for our love for the law. So it's both and, not either or. We must invest deeply in others. You saw those 70 teenagers singing in this choir today? Do you believe we ought to invest in them? In that generation? And look, I'm going to tell you something very sobering that I told the first hour. If the Lord tarries another hundred years from this day before he returns, it's almost certain that not one person in this room will be alive. Right? But the gospel will still be needed. And that's why we have to invest in this generation of believers, faithful men, passing it down to faithful men who will in turn pass it down to faithful men. Here, here's the ultimate example. Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it not so, I would have told you. I'm coming again, he said. And he did go away ultimately. After his resurrection, after 40 days, he ascended in their presence from the Mount of Olives. And he entrusted not only the book of Romans, as Paul did with Phoebe, he entrusted the most important truth in human history to 12 men, some retired fishermen, a tax collector, and a political revolutionary who had already proven themselves in recent history to be absolutely untrustworthy. He asked them to pray with him right the night of his arrest. They fell asleep. They said, Lord, if all these other men abandon you, we won't. First sign of trouble, they went to the four winds and hid out. And do you know who was with Jesus when he was crucified? The women. The men were hiding. And yet Jesus forgave them, called them back together, and gave them the gospel and said, go and make disciples of all nations. And you know what? There was no plan B. Not one. And praise be to God, they did it. Do you know how I know they did it? You're here today. Every one of us can trace our spiritual ancestry to that great commission moment. And if there are Christians in Keller in a hundred years when we're all dead and gone, it will be because we took up the mantle and we invested in that generation as well. Amen? Let's pray the Lord would help us do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we've seen today in your word the priority that you place on people. Father, we know ultimately you do everything you do for your own glory, but what glorifies you is when people who are lost and estranged to you are brought near by the blood of Jesus. Father, I thank you for Phoebe. Thank you for Priscilla and Aquila, for Andronicus and Junius, for Tryphene and Trophimus, and for all those names we find so difficult to pronounce. They were real flesh and blood people who Jesus died for. And Father, the real reason, the most important reason why we must invest in people at First Baptist Keller is because people are who Jesus died for. And those that he calls us to take the good news, those who have an eternal soul, 
who will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. People made in the very image of God. So Father, I pray that we would together, as you give us the ability, invest our time, talent, and treasure to the glory of Jesus by investing in people. Thank you for these young people who led us so well in worship. Thank you for the many children, preschoolers. And Lord, very soon they're going to inherit from us this great commission task. Father, we would pray that we would be faithful to pass it on to them. Faithful men to faithful men to faithful men. Lord, we know your scripture says when Jesus returns, there'll be a church to return for. For we trust you to complete this as we submit to your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.